Hey, welcome to Anecdotal Notes. I'm one of your hosts, Pat Aiken. I'm joined by the other host, Steve High. Hello, interwebs. And today, we're going to talk about the mysterious enigma of Tiwanaku and Pumapunku. And if you're not familiar, these are two ruined uh, ruins from an ancient temple complex. They say it's a temple complex on the Altiplano in Bolivia. And the thing is, I think the, the most mysterious thing that compels me to be really fascinated by the subject is the level of craftsmanship that's displayed in the stonework at Pumapunku. And before we go into that, let's just, uh, I want you to, as a listener, to maybe as you go beyond and, and you start researching this for yourself, know that in the area prior to the Inca Empire, there was a legend, and the Incas themselves, in fact, passed this legend down to the conquistadors, or if you're from the UK, the conquistadors, <laughs> and, uh, you know, so the Inca were passing down a legend from something that happened even in their prehistory about what took place in what formed the western coast of these civilizations in South America. And it all revolves around the arrival of a white, pale-skinned, white, bearded male figure called Viracocha. Viracocha arrives, and Viracocha had minions, uh, not the yellow type, but, you know, the regular type of minion who assisted Viracocha, and basically began to systematically work their way up the coastline and um, through these uh, different Indian cultures there and taught them agriculture, law, um, all of the civilizing social constructs that we take for granted. He accomplished a mission. He he did some miraculous things. He made some enemies disappear in like, uh, I believe it was described as a column of fire. And the last, uh, he departed apparently in uh, a boat on Lake Titicaca, which is adjacent to Tiwanaku and uh, Pumapunko. And, you know, it flew off into the distance, I mean, fiery or whatever. It, but he disappeared, okay? And, and But he left behind him all these civilizing factors, okay? That being said, and understanding the basis for what the South American legends were, if we examine Tiwanaku, and I believe, what is that, 536 A.D.? Somewhere around I accepted archaeological dating says that this place was constructed around A.D. 536 or so. And... You know, 
you talk about we, we use the term BS fiesta. Mm -hmm. Talk about a BS fiesta. <laughs> I'm so sorry, but you know the the Indian indigenous peoples at that time did not possess tools. No metal tools at all. At all that were hard enough to do the construction in the type of basaltic granite that exists in the, the great stones of the temple complex, or what's left of it, rather, they, they couldn't have created this. And if you've never heard of Puma Punka, it is adjacent to the uh, temple structure at Tiwanaku. And they have a great arch. Do you remember the name of the arch, Steve? Uh, I think it's the Gateway of the Sun. That's it, yeah. the Gateway of the Sun. And I don't know, probably a little less than half a mile, maybe even closer, mm -hmm. uh, you have Puma Punka. Now, a lot of the stuff that uh, is really interesting to me is that the location of Tiwanaku itself obviously has remained stable over time. But little known to most people is that at one time there was a waterfront at this temple. And now the lake is 18 miles or so away from where it once would have lapped up against the front of the temple complex That's because a lot of the... Uh, the things, uh, the, the, the system within the temple was hydraulically based, mm -hmm. hydro based. Yeah. And so, you know, over time, the lake has moved itself, whether through evaporation or whatever other process. So now it's quite distant from where it once obviously was. Mm -hmm. Now, Pumapunku, by comparison, and we don't have this in recorded history, but Pumapunku looks as if it were exploded in some way. Mm -hmm. And through the use of some kind of uh, explosive device, because there are literally shards of these stones all through the ground mm -hmm. of this temple. You know, well, they say it's a temple complex. I don't know. Pumapunku itself is com composed of these great H, capital letter H, shaped blocks. Go look it up on the internet and take a look at it for yourself. You'll see the things. But the stone carving on these blocks is absolutely so precise that even today on some of the edges at the corners you can cut yourself. Mm -hmm. Impossible to do with stone. Yeah, they're like perfect right angles. And That's absolutely. Yeah, and if you look at them, I mean, this calling them on art history, but but a lot of those actually have a very pronounced kind of Art Deco look, mm -hmm. because they're very machine aged, very squarish, very unusual for the other types of structures that, that a lot of the peoples around the world back then were making. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean. I honestly, the first time I saw it, uh, my first impression of Pumpunku was that it was prefabricated, mm -hmm. that someone had made like, uh, for lack of a better comparison, yeah. had pre prefabricated out of the native rock there, mm -hmm. 
giant Lego-like mm -hmm. blocks, which would have eased their ability to build a large, lasting structure quickly. Mm -hmm. That's the first thing that struck me. And the second thing was, if you look at the cuts, it is quite obvious that these cuts in the stone, rather, the cuts in the stone, the carving, was done by advanced tools. There's no way a person with a stone axe did this. So, you know, to me it just begs the question, okay, what we got going on? Yeah. Was, was, the, was there technology that the natives had come up with that we don't understand? Do they have help from outside? Well, there's no because you see, I mean, you see so many things about it. I mean, you're talking about a people who had only stone tools and natural tools around them. That's right. Uh, they had no metal except maybe they. There's some there's some discussion about whether they may have had copper, but copper is an extremely soft metal. It was one of the, you weren't going to carve granite with it. I doubt it. Yeah, and uh, to use stone tools on stone. You're talking about some kind of a wearing or a grinding process that would have taken God knows how many years just to make one block, much less all row of them. And then, you know, how do they measure so precisely? How do they get precise right angles? I mean, how do they make one thing absolutely identical to the other one? Because given the technology they had, it, it could have taken most of a lifetime just to make two or three of those things, much less a, a row. But you don't detect differences between individual craftsmen working on this, like you do so many other stone objects in prehistory. I mean, it's just—it's just baffling. Oh, the surfaces are absolutely smooth. Yeah. There's no chisel marks. There's no <coughs> indication of someone sitting and hammering yeah. away on it. It almost. There uh, are some claims made that people can detect machine marks on some of them. Well, it, it, that's new information to me. Then. Yeah. Well. If if that were the case, then that would definitely dispel the whole notion of AD 536. Yeah. Which, you know, just leads me to believe this in a kind of in a, an umbrella-like way. Uh, you know, I, let's, let's just posit this theory. Let's just throw this out there. We're spitballing, folks. But if I were some sort of colonizing intergalactic group of people, mm. okay, beings, mm. and I come into orbit over this planet, and by this point, if I'm advanced enough that I'm interstellar traveling, mm. I've got all sorts of uh, technology at my disposal. I can, I can actually look at composition of atmospheres and mm. I look at this planet, excuse me, and I see that the planet is very mineral rich. Mm -hmm. It's full of life. Mm -hmm. Biodiversity is amazing. Yeah. Yes. Just, you know, we've got oceans, we've got jungles, we've got forests. You know, just an amazing place. This place is resource rich. This warrants further study. So, let's say it's a little beyond, let's say it's 100,000 years ago, mm -hmm. and we go down and we say, well, there's things in this planet that we can use mm -hmm. in the future, mm -hmm. but we need to improve 
upon the biodiversity. We need to get some samples and we need to use our ability aboard the ship and let's genetically alter these creatures. Let's let's create even more of a population and fit them into this uh, genome. Mm -hmm. Let's get them started and say we'll come back 50,000 years or so. We'll send, you know, that other ship that's on the way, have them stop off, check this place out and see what the result of our first work is. So they do this genetic work. They catch these, these, you know, primates up in the trees and say, oh, these guys have the ability of their brain. They have a problem-solving brain. We can uh, do X, Y, and Z, you know. We're going to mutate these guys, all right? So they pull out of, you know, low orbit, and they're going on to uh, the next solar system over that they've got to check out, and they're gone now. And they just leave it to sit and to cogitate and to develop. Well, the next ship arrives, gets there. Now they got the, you know, the message. They say, okay, well, they altered X, Y, and Z on the planet, so we need to go look at progress like scientists would. What happened on this thing? Mm -hmm. So they get down there, and now these apes are no longer apes, per se. They've changed. They're hairless. You know, they're sitting around. Maybe they have fire. Maybe they don't. Mm -hmm. But they're in family groups like any primate would be. Mm -hmm. Well, the lead anthropologist on the ship, he says, you know, We've got to de- help develop these guys. Mm-hmm. We need to go down. We need to teach them mm-hmm. some of these basic precepts so that you know a civilization will spawn here. Mm-hmm. And that's what they do. They say, you know, we're going to be here. It's gonna, if we need to take four or five years out of 50,000, mm-hmm. what does it matter? Yeah. So we're going to stay here. We're going to make this a short-term project, you know, five-year plan. Mm-hmm. We're going to get this thing done. And get these human, these species of ape, we're going to get these guys truly established. Mm -hmm. So they send down a team, and they start working on these very precepts that Mm -hmm. we're going to teach them about communities and families and things they should do and they shouldn't do, and all this according to the precepts of the empire. Mm -hmm. Okay, Mm -hmm. we don't want them to, you know, stray away from the truth, Mm -hmm. you know. So they start this process, and they educate, and they do this to this group of primitives, Mm. okay? I don't know. Time elapses. They feel like they've completed. They suddenly say, hey, we got a roll. We got a, you know, it's a Betelgeuse galaxy or something over here. We've got to go. So they load up, go back up to the ship, blast out of orbit. Mm -hmm. They're on their way again. But as they leave, I said, we can't leave behind evidence because these guys will in, you know, 20,000 years or so, they're going to figure out that they were genetically manipulated. Mm -hmm. So we need to destroy any evidence that was left. Okay. So from high orbit, they just blow up, you know, a couple of three of their buildings. So they won't ever figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now they're on their way across the solar system. Now I know that's farcical, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> but 
given our history as a, as a species and how we've colonized, mm-hmm. you think about those guys out in the Pacific, you know, and Danikin brings that out in uh, his book, mm-hmm. uh, Chariots of the Gods. He mm-hmm. says, you know, cargo cults mm-hmm. went to all of these isolated Pacific islands, mm-hmm. you know, one day these people are barely hanging on. They're chasing wild pigs around the island, mm-hmm. catching fish, trying to survive. The next day, you know, the U.S. Army Air Corps has landed, set up a, a, a airstrip, and now they got pig in a can. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah, they don't have to chase anything anymore. Yeah. They just go over it. The GIs don't want it. They're sick to death of it. They're yeah. throwing it to them here. Yeah. Show them how to use the can opener. Yeah. All right, they're there for a while till the front moves further towards Japan. Mm-hmm. They leave the area eventually. So now, you know, here they are. Where'd they go, mm-hmm. first off? And B, where's the KMP? Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. we, we got to get the KMP back. <laughs> it's much superior to catching the other pig. Mm-hmm. So then they go out and they start building mock runways and they start building, you know, these sort of um, shrines and things yeah. right I, th- there's an, a fetish maybe I don't mm-hmm. know if fetish is the right word but it's a giant symbolic airplane mm-hmm. and they put it at the end of the runways because they want to re-attract mm-hmm. those guys who came from the sky mm-hmm. in that similar shaped vehicle yeah and you know I don't know if I doubt it seriously is going on at this point because of the level of immersion and culture mm-hmm. into every part of the world but yeah. Seriously, at least I know as late as the 60s and the 70s, mm-hmm. these guys were still out there yeah. on these little remote islands, and they yeah, were cargo cults. Yeah, they were famous. They were yeah. famous. Yeah. You know, come drop your stuff on us, dude. Yeah. But when you think about it, let's say a similar situation happened, you know, 20,000 years ago or whatever, and you would think that these people would show up and then they would leave and then. What they left behind to kind of develop a similar type of cult. What would it develop? What would it have developed into in 20,000 years? Oh, I know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. You know, the interesting thing, and I can't think of the archaeologist's name. Mm-hmm. You know, they have all the the mainstream archaeologists. They all go, in. You know how it is in science, and mm-hmm. so, well, it's kind of self-defeating in that once somebody has a theory and it gets accepted. Nobody really wants to go outside of the accepted theory because then you're on real shaky ground in the mm. scientific community. Yeah. You know, so somebody dated this around 536 AD. But uh-huh. another scientist went out there, spent 20 or 30 years, if I understand correctly. Mm-hmm. He said it was wrong. Yeah. He said by the placement of the the arch of the sun, mm-hmm. gateway of the sun, yeah. And other factors he found mm-hmm. that really it would probably be more accurate to say 15 to 17,000 mm-hmm. BC. Yeah, I remember that because they, they used a science called archaeoastronomy. That's right. And basically, what it is is uh, uh, based on a premise that a lot of these structures are astronomical in nature and they were used as essentially astronomical clocks by where at certain times of the year, or certain times in some type of cycle, certain planets or stars would line up in certain ways that that structure would represent right. by the way it was built. And uh, he had done a study on the complex where certain items that were built in the complex were obviously lined up in certain directions. 
and they did a study of the sky, what it would have looked like 100 years ago, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago. And the only thing they came up with were everything that they expected to line up, where most ancient cultures were paying attention to, lined up according to the way they had that structure built. I think they came up with a time of like 12,000 years mm -hmm. or something like that, which would have meant that at the time that structure was built, it would have been 12,000 years ago, because when they built it, that's where these astronomical objects were lined. Mm -hmm. <coughs> but, but you know, it's, it's interesting because it crosses culture. And mm -hmm. what you're saying, while it, it is true at Tiwanaku, yeah. it's also true for the Great Pyramid of Giza. Absolutely. And, and it's interesting, too, because, you know, when you think of how these structures were built to start with, I mean, in all of these places in South America we had talked to, like Tiwanaku, Teotihuacan, you know, Chichen Itza and all those places, and Puma Puku, too, you know, you have these very perfectly carved stones that weigh, in some cases, dozens of tons. That's right. Were placed so precisely that you could fit a sheet of paper between them. That's right. And then I would watch a show, like on National Geographic or something, talk about, oh, look at some archaeologists figured out how they built the pyramids. Okay, you watch a show. And all of their theories, like, have to do with manipulating sand in large quantities. Right. We built a giant ramp out of sand, or we filled the thing up with sand, and we leaned the rocks against it. We drained the sand out there and went out into this, and formed this arch, which was one of the theories they, they made for the, uh, the the path of the, of the king up through the, the big pyramid. Right. Because of the way the big stones were on top of it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but then you look at the structures in South America, which were built essentially the same way, stylistically maybe a little bit different, but the construction techniques were similar. There's no sand. I mean, what well, I mean, like Chichen Itza or Machu Picchu, is one that's literally built on the side of a, of a fairly steep mountain. Mm -hmm. but they got rocks that are, and the carved rocks that are put there that are just as big as the ones in some of these flatland ones, like the pyramids. Mm -hmm. I mean, how'd they get them up there? How'd they carve them so precisely? I mean, why did they arrange them the way they did? Yeah. I, you know, honestly, I think that people want to. Um, People want to have a convenient solution, yeah. and it's easier, you know, you don't want to stand up. If you're a teacher, I have some experience being a teacher. You know, it takes a lot of honesty if you're a teacher mm -hmm. when you're having a discussion in a class and yeah. a student asks you, uh -huh. you know, how did this happen? I feel like it takes a lot more integrity to say, you know, I have no idea yeah. than it would be to just come up with some mess that the student might believe, but then they're just believing something that you you know, brought out of the blue that, that has no basis in fact or, or com confirmable science. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't know. I know that from my own personal opinion wow. that if we've had a couple of uh, confirmations, one was uh, through geology, wow. that the Great Pyramid and the Sphinx were... were um, suffered at some point water erosion. Mm -hmm. Well, the last time there was enough water at that location was 15 to 17,000 years ago. Yeah. Okay, At that time, the Sahara Desert itself was a beautiful, fertile, Serengeti-like plain, except yeah. it was more lush, yeah. had a lot more water. 
okay, you jet around the globe over to the area we're talking about in Bolivia. Yeah. You know, it's a different, complete climate at the time. Yeah. So, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe it's just me, but I just honestly think we're pointing to some kind of intervention. Now, yeah. someone could argue, no, you know, what, what you're seeing, you think it's aliens, but it's really just a master civilization. Well, it's, it's to me like, I mean, studying history, um, I'm always wary about underestimating the abilities of ancient peoples. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, I mean, the ancient peoples had their Einsteins and their Newtons too. And there were some very smart people in the population who probably developed some very good abilities. I mean, they, I don't want to underestimate ancient peoples. Hey, abilities. Archimedes. Yeah, and figuring out how to do things. And we would look at it today and say, I don't know how I lift that thing without a crane. I really don't. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe the guy actually figured it out. It just, it, it just didn't survive. Maybe the guy was, like, super clever. But at the same time, then, the dissemination question is kind of interesting. Why did the ancient Egyptians and the culture of South America develop supposedly identical ways to do things as far as being able to handle large boulders and these be able to do these giant constructions of really precisely fitted uh, carvings? And then other places didn't, like uh, Angkor Wat right. in South Asia is another example of they figured out how to make a massive thing that still puzzles people how they did it. But then again, you look at a population like Native Americans in North America, all the various tribes, I mean, they could barely stack two pebbles together. Well, no, in fact, much later they mound-built, and they did have some fairly impressive mounds. Yeah, but I mean, it's basically piling earth. I mean, there's no technological mystery in how they did it. Right. Um, And then it's just how, you know, why did you know, somebody do something here. I mean, if it was like something that ancient peoples just generally knew how to do, why didn't everybody at some point in time figure it out? I mean, it's not like we had a shortage of granite in North America, but you don't see constructs like that. And, I mean, even discounting pre-Clovis cultures, I mean, we've had people here since the last Ice Age. That's right. They didn't build pyramids. I mean, what, why, what possessed the folks in South America to do it? What possessed the folks in Egypt to do it when there were just just as large cultures in uh, Nubia, sub-Saharan mm-hmm. Africa, That's all these right. other places, people, all the Arabs, they built nothing like that. Didn't have a clue how to build stuff like that. Yeah, I think it's so. It's too like if if you make the argument and say, well, um, if it's not intervention, it's something else. Then why wasn't it more widespread? It made more sense to me to say somebody showed up there and said. Let's build some new pyramids here. We'll kind of show you the trick on how to do that in one or two places in history and then disappear. Well, you know, my first my first gut reaction to this is to seek back into recent history. Mm-hmm. And do you remember the name of the uh, car that they created uh, in the Soviet Union? The Lada? The Lada, maybe. Yeah. But... The Lotta was very similar to a known European-style car. Yeah, Fiat. Fiat. And a lot of people put forward the notion that maybe 
in their haste to have a car production in the Soviet Union, yeah. they just, you know, lifted some plans from somewhere. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, all we got to do now is tool up a factory and we can make this vehicle, whether it's good or bad. And it yeah. was bad, by the way. Yeah. But, you know, they, they built this vehicle from a template. Mm-hmm. And you see, my logical mind says to me, well, why is this so similar? Because mm-hmm. we only find it in those two places, Egypt mm-hmm. and in South Central America with yeah. the pyramid, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's a ziggurat-style pyramid or just a smooth-sided mm-hmm. Egyptian pyramid. Yeah. But the concept's the same. The concept's the same. Yeah. And, you know, what I see is, okay, logically, these guys had some kind of template. Mm-hmm. Somebody came down, somebody said, let's do it this way, we can build it this way. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, it's just, you know, it boggles my mind. Mm-hmm. It does to me. Because if it was a natural progression of an ancient people to figure that out, why is it more widespread? Oh, why, I know. why is it only South America? Why is it only Egypt and not the rest of Africa? You know, Why is it only Angkor Wat and a couple of places and not the entire of Southeast Asia? You know, why is it, I mean, why is it just such an isolated thing to suddenly have the ability to build these wonderfully giant monuments? Well, and you know what? It helps to see things yourself. I say this because in Georgia, there's a state park called Fort Mountain. Mm -hmm. And if you read some of the descriptions on the internet of Fort Mountain, they make it seem like you've got some sort of Mott and Bailey configuration up there, in which, in the loose sense... It is, but once you get there and you actually see the construction, mm-hmm. it's what you just said. Mm-hmm. It's loose granite boulders, mm-hmm. which are mostly uh, maybe the size of uh, half a meter, mm-hmm. smaller, mm-hmm. and they're just piled on each other to form a wall. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I went there, you know, I had this. Uh, notion in my mind that I was going to see something truly amazing but when I got there and I saw it I was amazed because you know this is happening in uh, you know basically certainly pre-Columbian times here in this state Yeah. but it, it wasn't as spectacular as the people painted it to be in, in by the same token if we go up there's a national forest up in North Georgia and it's, the area had been overgrown badly by forests, mm-hmm. but they found what they seemed to think is a much more sophisticated mm-hmm. type of structure, yeah. fortress. And some people have put forward the notion that perhaps it was Mayan uh-huh. and that the Mayans were coming here. They were crossing the Gulf of Mexico and they were yeah. mining for a particular mineral. Mm-hmm that they used, it was a, a type of indigo or whatever mm-hmm. that they could use in some of their rituals and stuff. Mm-hmm. But I, I remember seeing something about that. Right. It, 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 uh, it's one of those stories that it made some national press. Mm-hmm. Then just as quickly, somebody shut it right back up. It was like, you know, we're not talking about that anymore. We're yeah. talking about this. Yeah. And, you know, I've never made it to that site in the National Forest because apparently yeah. it's very remote in yeah. a mountainous area. Yeah. And the thing about it to me is that, okay, well, we don't know. Can we prove it's Mayan? I don't know. They'd have to really truly do a real archaeological dig there. But 
this much we can uh, uh, surmise, and that is somebody who had the knowledge of building stone walls mm. for for defense, because yeah. that's why you build a stone wall. Yeah. Was in this area probably between you know at least the latest uh, 1400 or several, a couple of three or four hundred years prior to that. Yeah. Uh, and they were doing something in this fortress because the woodland of the forest Indians mm-hmm. uh, here, those pr- cultures mm-hmm. weren't doing that. Now they were mound building. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, I wonder sometimes if perhaps we're seeing extrapolated a group of those folks they don't have you know dirt mm-hmm. to build with per se so what they yeah. do is they just build with stuff good where will be yeah. oh no but you know is it aliens you know that's really the question and, and it's yeah. a question for everything yeah is it aliens if yeah. you make a ham sandwich yeah were the aliens involved in the ham sandwich <laughs> yeah you know what i'm saying i mean yeah. it's just like what it's like what kind of intervention you think. I mean, there could be any number of things. I mean, it's very Eurocentric to think that the European civilization, modern Europeans, was the only one that had its explorers. Right. And it's hard to think of, you know, the thousands of years of the Egyptian kingdom that they didn't have people that get in boats and say, you know, I wonder what's over that horizon. Mm-hmm. And the same thing with the South Americans and the Polynesians and the Chinese and all these other people. That uh, I think there are people all over the world a lot sooner than a lot of people think. But did the Egyptians come over and meld with the South American folks and said, "Hey, you know, you want to do something cool? Build a pyramid over there," you know, or do that? Or maybe it was the um, because maybe the Egyptians had some kind of technology that we don't know now that we have not excavated or seen any any record of. Well, I can make you know this much of an observation being a, a, a sometimes mariner myself and mm-hmm. in, in salt water yeah. uh, the kind of ships that they found uh, buried mm-hmm. adjacent to the Great Pyramid of Cheops yeah. are seaworthy mm-hmm. and they're based you know we don't know this we don't know is it based on the Phoenician model or is the Phoenician model based on the Egyptian model we don't mm-hmm. know but they're so similar mm-hmm. and they used uh, the planking method with the studs mm-hmm. the metal studs in it like the Vikings did yeah. and the Vikings proved that this particular shaped hole was very seaworthy because they utilized it all the time going back and forth across the North Atlantic mm-hmm. you know pe- people until you, you you can't really conceive of the kind of hostile environment that you're in until you go out into a wintertime Atlantic Ocean swell. Mm-hmm. Okay, in in my my experience has always been off Georgia, mm-hmm. in Florida, in the Gulf of Mexico. Well, the Gulf of Mexico is unless there's a storm out there, pretty much placid. It's very the tide, you know, it most places in uh, the Gulf Coast is like a foot. Mm-hmm. It moves up a foot and down a foot. You go off of like say Savannah, where you're adjacent to the Gulf Stream, mm-hmm. you can drop 15 feet mm-hmm. in a tide. And, and I found myself uh, uh, captured in shore one time. I got caught and the tide went out. Mm-hmm. 
and it was I was very lucky. I was able to wiggle off a mud bank. I was I wasn't paying attention. I was fishing, you yeah, know. Yeah. But I managed to do that. But it literally left me high and dry mm-hmm. because the tide went out so quickly. Mm-hmm. So if you had a ship that was seaworthy, like the uh, um, the Vikings did. Mm-hmm. And all of these are all copies from other holes. You know, that's how it is. There's an institutional memory among mariners, mm-hmm. just like it would be among engineers. Or, yeah. You know, so we know this hole works. We've built this hole 150, hole 156 times. Yeah. We can put this together, and this will work to take cargo between uh, Rome and uh, Athens. Mm-hmm. It works. Yeah. We can get it there. So why fix what's not broken? And that a lot of times is the the rule. So yeah, I mean, was there a possibility or probability that you know these two primitive cultures could be in contact? I, I think certainly because I think we've just we've been left with a black hole of history. I think that there's a huge gap of what man did in between the cataclysm. And the rebuilding of uh, civilization from the cataclysm, mm-hmm. and I think prior to that, I think there was a lot more going on. Now, I, I personally, I don't adhere to the uh, the alien thing so much. I, I consider it a possibility, but a very remote one. Okay, and I, I could fall in that same category. Yeah. Okay, I just really don't think that you know. Unless their level of tech, now their level of technology would have to be a million years in advance of us to be mm-hmm. interstellar travelers yeah. in the conventional sense. Okay, yeah. just saying, they're and, gonna have to be going. And again, there's there's always a danger of underestimating the abilities of ancient peoples. Well, uh, I'm talking about the aliens. Oh, the aliens. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm saying, you know, you, you travel between stars. Yeah. To, to make it timely enough, unless yeah. you're going to build generational ships, yeah. you you know, you, I just don't see it. But what you're saying, I feel very strongly, is in that perhaps at one time on this planet there was a master civilization. Mm-hmm. And perhaps we have underestimated mm-hmm. our own ancestors. I think so. So I think that, I think um, knowledge is gained by humans over time and it's lost by humans over time and I think that there may have been some viable techniques used to build those stones either in ancient Egypt or anything else and there were some people, I mean, ancient world had its Einsteins and Newtons and everything else too sure. about how to about how to do certain things you know, it may, it may have taken a lot longer, you know, it may have taken 25 years to carve those stones Really right. Know, but they were able to do it, and uh, the knowledge of how to do that was just gradually lost over time. Well, I mean, if we you had know, because the temple builders and the descendants of the temple builders gradually disappeared over time, and over the millennia, people just forgot. But think about it this way, you know, yeah. from Christian uh, history, mm-hmm. or you know, from the Old Testament, yeah. the flood. Mm-hmm. Well. Since we know now that a flood did happen, uh-huh. we we've got to, we've got conclusive proof from many civilizations mm-hmm. 
across our planet that say that yes we had a great cataclysm okay well any antediluvian society if it were um, a smaller population in comparison to anybody else that was on the planet mm -hmm. because we can't take for granted that the most advanced people yeah. you know on the planet they would have probably been a smaller group than the vast majority well, yeah and, it's, yeah. and it's, that's a point that a lot of people uh, miss about even interpreting some of the Old Testament stories is that when you read an Old Testament story and it talks about the world we automatically think of the world as the entire globe of the earth because that's what we're familiar with right but back in those days, Moses's known world may have been six counties wide. Right. You know, of that. Now, um, we know for a fact there's archaeological evidence that there was a major flood in that area of the world hmm. thousands of years ago. Now, that flood right there, if Moses was in it, would have wiped out his known world. I mean, that would have been all the mm -hmm. civilization, all the people, all the population, would have been gone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think Moses was, by the standards of the time, an educated man, mm -hmm. been raised as a prince of Egypt. Mm -hmm. So, therefore, Moses would have had access to all of the history and prehistory that was collected by the priests, mm -hmm. you know. So Moses would have known or heard rumors, I think, of other places mm -hmm. beyond the Mediterranean. Yeah. Because that was their world. Yeah. It was basically what rings the Mediterranean Sea uh -huh. and then everything else out you know we used there be dragons or there's barbarians yeah, there's here cosmos, yeah right but when they talk about the world they talk about that area that's immediately around them yeah yeah I don't know it's, it's a very interesting uh, proposition to think that any day now mm -hmm. if if we get the knowledge of see this is the thing yeah there are archaeologists from many, many universities out working on different sites all over the world. But the problem we have is the same that we have in some of the paranormal communities, which is you have an archaeologist out there, and he digs up a fossilized AMF and radio. Yeah. They, they, he's like, oh, my gosh, look at this. They dated. This is obviously man-made. Yeah. This is 20,000 years old. Well, do you honestly think, given the stratification that's taken place in this mainstream science world, that you or I are ever going to hear about that radio? No. Nobody's ever going to be brave enough to publish it. Yeah, it's just the, the way human science works. So it'll end up in a box along with all sorts of other paraphernalia and giant skeletons yeah. in the Smithsonian somewhere. Yeah. Hidden, securely hidden. On the right. From public view where you'll never see them. Never ever see them so that you don't ask questions. Yeah. Because the government knows everything. Yeah. Right? So they, so they tell us. So they tell us. Yeah. And you don't need to question the fact that there may have been real giants walking around. And, no, not really. You know. What if aliens did? Mm -hmm. If they're aliens, then that means that our whole deal here is a false construct. Right? I mean, if they're... Well, it kind of depends on what, what they really did here versus what they what we think they did here. That's true. It's kind of sad. Yeah. Well, let's, you know, let's give the aliens the benefit of the doubt. You know, they come in here and they did 
uh, genetically manipulated us. They created civilization. They nurtured us. Uh-huh. You know, they send drones back and stuff periodically to check yeah. on our progress. If they're beneficial, well, you know, even though we have created mm-hmm. governmental governmental entities for ourselves as a species, yeah. uh, who would you be more loyal to? Because yeah. these are the creators. These are the yeah. people who really did it. Yeah, and and that and that buys into the whole thing. Well, do you really believe in the whole benevolent alien thing? Right. It's like you know, Carl Sagan, who I'm not a terrible fan of, but uh, one of the dumber things he said in the past was, well, if a civilization was advanced enough to travel between the stars, they must, by definition, be morally advanced and be so much more morally above our species. Yeah. They would, you know, and this there's no there's no evidence. No proof of that. I mean, this the only the only the comparison we have is the human race, and if anything, it's gotten worse. Human nature didn't change. The only thing our technology brought us was easier ways to carry it out. That's right. Yeah, technology makes being a fink a lot easier, doesn't it? That's right. Right. Yeah, we're still the murderer safe as we were a million years ago. It's just that now we, we're much more efficient at it because of our technology. And you know, it's interesting you say that murderous apes. Yeah. Because if you look at our closest genetic cousin, which is the chimpanzee, mm-hmm. Periodically, in their fam- uh, families or clan groups or whatever, yeah. you know, they uh, have aberrations and, you know, they they do eat each other occasionally. And yeah. guess what human beings do? Yeah. The same thing. Yeah. They do, the, the chimps will at every opportunity eat a primate lower than them. Yeah, they'll eat the hell out of other monkeys. That's right. Catch them, eat them right yeah. there. Heck yeah. It, you know, they're also chimps are super aggressive in the wild. Mm-hmm. They'll gang up on you, beat you with stones and stuff. Yeah. You know, I, I'm just saying, it's very interesting to me that um, since we are so genetically close, so I think we're one chromosome off from being mm-hmm. chimps. Yeah. You know, who knew that to make the difference? I mean, barring a religious explanation, mm-hmm. how you how are you going to differentiate this? strange coincidence that we're one chromosome off from being a chimp uh-huh. and yet this one switch within our DNA allowed us uh-huh. you know to, to be problem solvers to use technology all of these things took place and somehow yeah. somewhere in the distant past yeah. through some outside agent yeah. we became who we are today yeah. Now, what does this have to... I don't know if it has anything directly to do with Egypt or Pumapunku, except for the fact that if, you know, you look at Pumapunku, and it's it's like... I don't know, it's just like you, you feel like after you've seen the place that, God, science is just bald-faced lying to me. Mm-hmm. There's no way yeah. that these people with these tools, if, if, if they're archaeological explanation is correct. Let me throw out that clarifier. Mm -hmm. But there's no way they did that. Somebody who had an idea of living in a society where prefabrication Mm -hmm. was a constant and a convenience. Mm -hmm. You know, think about our own military. In the United States military, you know, once upon a time it was tents. That's all passe now. Now they just bring in these whole trailer cities mm-hmm. made from containers. Yeah. 
drop them down, plug them in, and now they have an entire military base with a wall and everything, mm-hmm. and they can have it up and running in a week. Yeah. And have a full, I mean, 10,000 people on the ground. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is the same sort of comparison I'm making to Puma Punka. Mm-hmm. It seems to me almost like it was so conveniently assembled. And those H blocks look to me, mm-hmm. I, I'm the, the listener, or I know you have. Yeah. You're an engineer. I know you've done this. Mm-hmm. You've had civil engineering courses. Mm-hmm. You've had to have done this. But if you look at the abutments and stuff in where, say, for instance, you're building um, sound barriers along interstates in suburban areas. Mm-hmm. And they build the walls, and the walls are sometimes 30 and 40 feet high because they purposely done that to funnel the, the sound up rather than longitudinally. Mm-hmm. And you look at the blocks that they've used to reinforce the barrier. They didn't hand carve these blocks. These blocks were, in our case, they're cement, mm-hmm. but they're prefabricated. So all they've got to do is come along and go, pop, yeah. pop. And put these things in place. Yeah, made in the mold. Made yeah. in the mold. Mm-hmm. Bop, bop, bop. And, you know, very quickly, and because it's concrete, it'll mm-hmm. be there forever, pretty mm-hmm. much. You know, they very quickly are establishing infrastructure mm-hmm. utilizing this. Now, you've seen the H-blocks. Mm-hmm. What do they look like to you as an engineer? I want you yeah. to think about this, because you're an engineer. Yeah. They, they look to me like prefabricated blocks. General purpose. I mean, you could put them up, you could put them across, you could put them down. You could they could be integrated in whatever design you got, <clears throat> whatever you needed to. See, it looked like somebody generated a bunch of prefabricated things and left them there with the intention of doing something, and then either stopped or changed their mind or did something, but they left a bunch of them there. It's like almost like leftovers of a construction project, but you're wondering where the original project was. Yeah, you know, like I said, uh, when I when I was introducing the topic, mm-hmm. a lot of observations have been made because of the nature and the size of the shards from these stones, mm-hmm. almost like it was a demolition, yeah. which I can't, you know, we don't know. But, yeah. but if you blow a building up, I don't care how hard you try, mm-hmm. there's still going to be some of the building left over. You yeah. can demolish it, but there's going to be remnants of what was once a building. Yeah. I, I don't know. I've seen. I, I've watched the guy uh, with the hair, Sukulos. Is yeah, his name? Yeah. You know, and I think he's a really smart guy. Okay? Yeah. He's a little more uh, passionate. Yeah. About it, but you know, one guy on one of his uh, documentaries he had on television, I saw, said it looked like maybe a rocket ramp mm-hmm. for you know launching something like a V2 rocket. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. I can sort of see it. But in my my gut says that there was a building there. That, you know, mm-hmm. maybe it was a headquarters. Maybe Viracocha and those guys needed a place to work out of yeah. while they were here on the planet. Mm-hmm. If the alien hypothesis is correct. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's kind of hard to say because it definitely looks like prefabricated. It definitely looks like they were put together to assemble something that kind of looked very Bauhausy, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. And uh, a very square, you could have made a very square utilitarian structure out of those blocks. I mean, they would have tied together perfectly. They would have been, it would have been a nice form. It just looks very modern compared to 
a lot of the other construction that was going on. I mean, even compared to some of the other sites. Mm-hmm. I mean, like you look at the Gateway of the Sun and, and mm-hmm. Tijuana and places like that. They're very well constructed and everything like that, but still, in kind of a way, they look ancient. Mm-hmm. You got that weird skeleton-looking thing that the that the people right. were sacrificed over, and the big bowl and the steps and all that. Right. And the 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 some of the details of the carvings and the pyramids and all that. You know, they kind of look very anciently styled, mm-hmm. I guess, from an art history perspective. But then you look at those blocks, and this looks like something that would have been made in New York in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. You know, very angular, very square, very not not elaborately carved. I mean, it's not like you would have seen hieroglyphs or anything on them. They were just smooth, square, with these H patterns built into them. It's literally like somebody took a, took apart a 1930s or 40s New York skyscraper, mm-hmm. carefully set them, transported them down to Bolivia, and just... Right, you yeah, know, I, just just planted a row of them right there and say, oh, let's see you figure that out. And you know, the thing is, uh, one of the the you're so right in that in that whoever thought this out, yeah. whoever designed it, mm-hmm. they even have if you their insets mm-hmm. within the stones, the H stones themselves, where yeah. you can plug in like a Lego block. Yeah. You can plug other H stones into that block without having to. Uh, yeah. Go through a bunch of. I mean, not only is it technologically different, obviously, it's stylistically different. I mean, it's like, you know, whenever you engineer something, whenever you design something, you have the technical aspect of it, but then you have the look aspect of it. Sure. There's the style that you impart to it. It's like when you design a car. Mm-hmm. I mean, what's the car going to look like? I mean, yeah, it has to function, but then people expect style out of it. Sure. So it's like whoever d- developed those blocks had their technological function, but they also had a sense of style that was fundamentally different than anything else that was going on there. And that kind of points me toward there was some kind of intervention somehow. Either somebody from another civilization came and said, oh, this is how we do it. Right. Or you had that one that one guy in the Mayas or the Incas that was decided he was going to be Pablo Picasso and just kind of blow up everybody's sense of style and make something totally different. He was going through his block phase. Block phase, yeah. 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 <laughs> but, well, it's, it's, you know, it's just the, the possibilities are so endless. you ever seen the movie uh, version of Starship Troopers? The first one. The movie, yeah. Okay. And, and see, something screams at me functionality at Puma Punku. Uh-huh. And in that movie, uh, I don't know, it doesn't matter whether you like the movie or not. You know, yeah. it's whatever. But... They had these mobile forts. Yeah. They were all metal. Uh-huh. And they could be parachuted or dropped uh-huh. into an area and they were self contained yeah. and they were completely functional. Had yeah. guard towers built in, yeah. metal walls, yeah. had uh, everything, you know, chow hall, command center, uh-huh. everything was built in. So all they had to do was come out of orbit, put these things there on yeah. the planet. And guess what? We're here now. We're yeah. in business. We have troops. We have guns. Mm-hmm. We can feed ourselves. We can protect ourselves. And, and and that's the thing that, to me, strikes me about Puma Punku, is it, conversely from Tiwanaku, which seems to me, obviously, to have some sort of 
symbolic or religious or some kind of representation mm -hmm. spiritually maybe yeah, of the native peoples there right but Pumapuku is functional yeah completely functional at yeah. least from from the remnants yeah. that we can examine yeah I don't know did Tiwanaku did that you see I see this scenario drawn up in my mind where Pumapunku's first because that's where they land and that's where they put, you know, our headquarters in this yeah. facility. That's where they actually have the, the prefab stuff. Then. That's right. They come in, let's set this up. We got to go civilize yeah. these hairless apes and yeah. we got to get underway. Then, yeah, then once they taught the hairless apes how to do it, then the hairless apes started building the Tiwanakos. Well, you know, maybe Tiwanakos. Using, using whatever technology was handed to them. Right, since it was concurrently constructed, mm -hmm. I see it as maybe in a way like, uh, you know, uh, uh, a project. Like, okay, well, we're going to show you guys now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, well, you're the sun god, so yeah. we need this and you yeah. need that. And so you teach them slowly how to build the temple complex. They learn, mm -hmm. or the, the group of yeah. People, you know, the They're engineers. Learning civil engineering. Right. Yeah. The civil engineers amongst this group of people, mm -hmm. they learn. You say, okay, well, we have checked off the to-do list on this planet, mm. and you know, let's roll up out of here because I'm bored and mm, we need yeah. to go to Saturn and look at. Yeah. And you know, they hop back and they go back up to you know the mothership, yeah. for lack of a better term, yeah. and they're on the way, mm -hmm. you know, and in a blink, they may be still be going to where they're go we're mm -hmm. trying to go to in a blink of an eye, you know, yeah. and we're we're now sitting here discussing this. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, you know, and I, that's, I noticed listening to myself before this, I say I don't know a lot, but you know what, to me, mm -hmm. I feel like that's a hallmark of honesty. I don't have the answers for some of these things. They're just we're discussing them and thinking about them, and yeah, they've been mysteries for a long time. They'll continue to be. Yeah, I mean, but you know what? Today I feel like I had an insight with the functionality portion of it. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And even if the Egyptians are some master civilization, yeah, which I like to tend to think, I, I, I don't know. You draw things up, you know, you reach conclusions in your mind, and mm -hmm. I think there was a master civilization, but. Yeah. I think what we're seeing are remnants. I think that the Egyptian civilization mm -hmm. and maybe those folks over on uh, the the west coast of South America, mm -hmm. some of these places were remnants that did survive mm -hmm. the deluge or the cataclysm yeah. prior to the Ice Age, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. And, and carried with them an institutional memory or ability of how to construct those things. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, in those areas, they weren't affected by the, the glaciers. Mm -hmm. They were, uh, certainly in Egypt wasn't. It was a much more temperate uh, sort of climate there during that time yeah, frame. the Sahara was jungle. Jungle. Yeah. Savannah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they could have survived a deluge, you know. And, no, I just feel like, and, and I'm sure the listener, if you're out there, and I'm sure I hope you are, because I'm talking straight to you now. But, <laughs> you know, think about it this way. We have such gaps in our prehistory that there's no other logical explanation for some of this. Now, you can cling to what archaeology from the mainstream tells you, but over and over again, you know, they get proven wrong. Mm -hmm. 
the whole thing, they were very embarrassed uh, about the Sphinx. They, they, that guy brought the geologist out there, and he's like, yeah, well, this, this is erosion, but it's not wind erosion. This is water erosion. And he could immediately point out examples mm-hmm. of water erosion over time in lots of different places, like the Grand Canyon and you know mm-hmm. stuff like that. So the Sphinx and the pyramid were there mm-hmm. 15,000 years ago. I fully believe that. I think that they, you know, suffered, but because of what they were, they weren't destroyable by water. Mm-hmm. They survived it. Mm-hmm. And then afterwards, you start seeing the other pyramids, but they're all much smaller, much less spectacular mm-hmm. copies mm-hmm. of the Great Pyramid. Yeah. You know, then there's the Enochian explanation, which was that you know, a lot of people think Enoch from the Bible mm-hmm. built that, and Enoch was taken back up with God mm-hmm. bodily. Mm-hmm. He didn't stay. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just it's, it's pretty 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 interesting stuff here mm-hmm. today, Steve. Yeah, we've touched on a lot of. Uh BS and our BS fiesta. That's right. <laughs> Lots of BS. And, but I do have one victory today, which is that uh, I can claim that a, a genuine Georgia Tech trained engineer agreed with me on, on one of my <laughs> hypotheses, which, which, as far as I'm concerned, it's it's law now. It's not just theory. It's law. It's law. It's right. Well, anyway, I hope. You know, you guys out there listening, you mean a lot to us, and we appreciate you uh, listening and your participation. Hey, you know what? We know we're not fancy, we're not flash, but that's not what we're about. We're about being a voice, a voice in the underground, talking this stuff over and having a conversation. I don't want to necessarily present uh, a show to you for you to be spoon-fed by Steve and I would much rather we talk and discuss this like you were sitting in the room with us so that you can arrive at your own theories and make your own hypotheses because ultimately that's what all of this search for the unknown is about. And I want you to take that away from today. And we'll be with you again shortly. Mm -hmm. And we just appreciate you again. And Steve, got any last words before we depart? I just... uh... If you're ever looking for interesting books, and uh, Pat and I both like to read, and there are a lot of books out on, on interesting subjects, and we were just sitting here actually before the show flipping through a book here that's probably one of the more famous, mm-hmm. uh, I guess you could call fringe books out there, and it's Chariots of the Gods by Eric von Daniken. Mm-hmm. And he's an interesting fellow himself. He's still around. And uh, if you ever get a chance to, to find a copy of this book, maybe somewhere cheap, like in a thrift store or something like that, or even a regular bookstore, pick it up because it's fascinating reading. Uh, you may not agree with everything in it, but nevertheless, the, the things and attitudes that are presented are, are a lot of food for thought, whether or not they're ultimately true or not. And Daniken has written a number of, of books, uh, Gold of the Gods and one or two other ones. that I've, I've, I have a number of them. And uh, but check them out and check some others. Uh, I mean, there's another book along these lines is written by an individual by the name of Zechariah Stitchin. Oh yes. Yes, and he wrote quite a number of books, and I have a number of them in paperback, and and he's much along very similar lines. 
So if you ever get a chance, pick up some of those books, and they make for very interesting reading if you're fascinated by some of the things we talked about today. Yes, right. And, you know, if you're more science-based, Stitchin is your guy. He's very scientifically based. So anyway, you know what? Thank you again, and we'll catch up with you next time on Anecdotal Notes.